Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everybody. Nick here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Another week, and we are here today with a really interesting conversation that I am sure you are going to enjoy massively because it's all around investment and scale. It's kind of the heartland of what we talk about on Scale Up Your Business because I'm delighted to have joined me Ryan Tansom. Now, Ryan Tansom helped turn around his family's business and then sell it for eight figures to a local competitor back in 2014. And the whole growth and exit process was, as he calls it, unexpectedly difficult. And the lessons that he learned through that have been invaluable to what he does now. So he's taken that experience. He's co-founded a business called Arcona. And he's created a process which is called the Intentional Growth Five Principles Framework, which is all about how you can go through the process that he went through with more rigor and precision so that you can maximize the value of your business at exit. Now, as you know, um, the thing I do more often than not is help ambitious businesses, entrepreneurs uh, grow and scale their business so they can sell that business for eight to nine figures at some point in the future. So um, meeting Ryan was was almost like meeting a brother, <laughs> if you get that analogy, because we connected on LinkedIn, very similar um, philosophies around this stuff. So the conversation you're going to hear today uh, is very much about two guys who are really passionate about this space. Now, Ryan's mission is to help entrepreneurs get clarity around this this growth and value piece around business and shifting their mindset away from just the, the, the usual focus on annual income to focusing on long-term value creation. So what we're going to get into today is, is stuff around value growth, stuff around valuations, obviously a whole heap of M&A mastery and trickery, if I want to call it that. And we're going to also touch on the economy and, and conscious capitalism, which is another thing that I'm really passionate about as well, because I think it's fine to have the ambition to have a business that you can grow and scale to have a big exit one day, make some money to create some wealth. But the more that you can also think about um, doing good, making a bigger impact, creating an empire that changes the world, I think that's uh, you know something that's also worthwhile considering in your whole growth and scale-up journey. So that's it. Uh, final thing for me, if you haven't subscribed or left a review for Scale Up Your Business, please do so. It helps what I'm doing. It inspires me. And uh, as we're growing, we've we've had some incredible um, numbers of growth over the whole COVID lockdown period. I think we've doubled in our listenership. There's more and more people out there now who are kind of coming into the community, which is great. Uh, I said, I really value those um, reviews just so I can get the feedback and I can continue to improve the show. So that's it for today. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Ryan Tanson. Hi, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business for another week. Now, I've been away on holiday for a few weeks, hence the amazing tan that I've brought back from the Greek islands. But as always, Scale Up Your Business is not about me. It's about the amazing guests that I bring onto the show. So today I have with me Ryan Tansom. Now, Ryan is a turnaround scale-up expert. He's had a big exit with his family business. And now he focuses his his time working with entrepreneurs and business leaders, taking them through the principles of scale up to create valuable businesses um, that uh, are available to be sold for for creating value, for creating profit. So Ryan, welcome to Scale Up Your Business tonight. Good to be here, Nick. Other side of the table, man. (laughs) Yeah, well, I didn't say. You've also got a pretty cool podcast. So... (laughs) Yeah, that's not for me to judge, right? (laughs) No, but I can say that, you know, I mean, hey, you know, it's my, you're my guest, right? So, so we have to kind of, you know, make sure you feel comfortable um, with all the crazy stuff. I'm all good, man. (laughs) So let's, let's get into it, mate. So, you know, what I like to do kind of when I bring people on, particularly people who have kind of had some success with their business and the whole scale up thing is kind of start a little bit with the history, kind of what your background Mm -hmm. is. And then what I'd like to do today 
is let's go backwards and forwards on some of the key principles of scale up the things you've learned the stuff i talk about and i think that will be a rich conversation for our listeners yeah for sure um so i'll i'll give the the obviously the cliff note version um about the background which is essentially all this lens to like why we are today uh why we're here today and uh when you say expert expert usually comes with an insane amount of bumps and bruises and pain right it does <laughs> which I'm expert sure. expert is a, absolutely that it's not it's not expert a- in pain. yes exactly <laughs> especially when you throw the word turnaround in it well uh, so um I got exposed to uh, entrepreneurship, uh, Nick, when my dad started our family business in the 90s, uh, mortgaged our house, bought a semi truck full of Panasonic used copiers. Fast forward, um, we had a $21 million business, 115 employees, uh, three locations. I worked in out of the business my whole life, um, joined full time around the financial crisis. And the business model shifted. Well, it, I mean, it, it was supposed to, it was the start of it where the margins dropped out of the equipment um, where a lot of the, the business was made. And so it, we ended up having to turn around the business for the next five or six years when I was at the business and the, I mean, new ERP system, sold a couple of the branches, built out, managed IT, new branding, just tons of stuff, just trying to keep the machine going. And then got to this point where, you know, family businesses and or partnerships or name it, and we can get into it is we had different timelines, different risk appetite, different wants and needs. And we couldn't figure out a way where like at that point I was running the business, like what can I, cause it, what can I do with it to take it, continue to make it my own. And uh, so he wanted his money. He didn't want to do it anymore. So we kind of ended up going back and forth, ended up uh, doing a little mini controlled auction, sold it to a local competitor that paid us, a good chunk of money and there were different offers on the table. We can talk about those sold the business, paid a lot of taxes, paid a lot of debt. And then I went, what in the hell was that? Um, realizing there was so many things we could have done differently, which, you know, fast forward six plus years. That's why we're here right now to probably talk about some of those. Did you have, I mean, uh, just on that piece, I mean, just to quickly jump on in that, so I don't forget. Um, did you have much advice around that process, the sale process? Did you have corporate finance or anything like that coming in to help you? Oh man. I mean like, you know, no, yes and no. So like the challenge Nick is like in a lot of, I see this every single day is that we didn't really know how to articulate what we wanted. So we leave it up to a lot of entrepreneurs, leave it up to everybody else guessing because corporate finance isn't even a word that most entrepreneurs know, let alone like what's the difference between that and other types of finance or do you have, you know, like I saw you've had a Mike from profit first. Are they just bang balancing their bank accounts? So like we were, we had some pretty big players in the Twin Cities, honestly, from a CPA firm, a law firm. We had some big fancy investment banker that came out of New York, flew in at one point. They, I wrote up what I found out was a SIM. We paid 40 grand for this pitch deck. They disappeared, never brought us to market. So wow, like- Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah, dude. Oh, uh, Madison Street Capital. <laughs> just like, just gone, man. And But the thing is, is like, I, I, I kind of like, I don't really blame anybody because it's just the, the nature of the machine where we knew our business, we knew the operations, we were solving for annual income, didn't know valuations, value growth, all the things that we're about to talk about. So we had people coming in and out solving for their silo, not sitting down and saying, Corey and Ryan, what do you want? How much is this worth? What are the ways to engineer this for growth, for the different exits, all the different things. So like, it was like a lot of people building a puzzle without the picture with puzzle pieces upside down. Okay. Got it. Wow. Okay. But you still had a pretty successful exit. Yeah. I mean, if you were to go back, it's successful in the structure of the deal. And this is kind of, it comes down to the five principles that we created, but it's like what defines success? I mean, I've had, you know, 210 podcast interviews of people that have netted an insane amount of money and they're not happy because it could have done things differently. So from a financial perspective, did we maximize the dollar amount and everything of the options that we had? Yes, but were there other options that could have aligned better for you know longer term incentives or, or values that I wanted? Yeah, but it is tricky. I mean, I was advising someone today, a business that's gonna go into, well into the nine figures. Um, in fact, it's in a process now. And, and it was funny because what I said to them is, you know, that they were somewhat nervous, the two co-founders, somewhat nervous about the whole thing. And I said to them, well, hold on, you've got to be intentional first about what you're trying to achieve here, because there's four ways that you can get to where you want to get to, four paths, okay? Different mm-hmm. types of investors, different types of options. 
Um, and they're all going to provide different things. Now, one's going to give you more certainty. In other words, you might get less money, but more certainty. You're going to get your cash now. Others are going to, mm-hmm. you know, potentially take you to an IPO position, you know, and all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff. And you've got to be clear on that because they were going into it, just kind of letting other people try and instruct them on what they the wanted. And I, I don't, no judgment. These guys are great, right? Really good. Yep. But they, they just didn't know because they haven't been through this before. And it's hard if you haven't had that experience or you haven't um, got other people in your corner that can advise on that. Right. And I think, Nick, I mean, you know, it comes down to you and you said the word intentional, which is part of the name of my podcast. And the only way to like, you know, I think about like, let's unpack, like, what is it? What is the purpose of being an entrepreneur? Like there's generally like the personality plays into it. There's a, a need in the marketplace, you know, a lot of passionate people that find a need and then they find a way to, to monetize that need. And then there's also people that love to make money. And then there's a combination of all of those. The only, and, and I think the, the, some themes that I have constantly uncovered is that the desire for freedom and the desire to choose your own path. And like, and the risks that come with that path, right? Like, I mean, I mean, the amount of risks that entrepreneurs take is ridiculous, constantly rolling the dice, but you usually do that by synthesizing all the information and making a, making a educated bet, right? I mean, that's truly what it is. But I think when you go into this world of valuations and value growth and what are the different exits, you can't have an educated bet if you don't understand all the different options. What's like, I mean, if you had 10 private equity offers on the table, every one of those are different. Where did they get their money? What's the general partnership structure? What's the deal structure? How much up front? That's just private equity. Then you take a strategic lens on top of that, maybe compare it to an ESOP. And you, you just like, it's like this big, huge jigsaw puzzle and you can't make a, an intentional decision if you don't understand it. So therefore, usually things happen to entrepreneurs and they go through the whole process and they wake up afterwards going, huh, didn't realize, you know, I didn't know, I didn't understand this game. No, well, that's what you said beforehand about people can still make a bit of money, but be miserable because they didn't understand what they were getting themselves into. But let's, yeah. I cut you off as I, as I, you know, I apologize. <laughs> Hey man, I, I like that. I, that's how I rally. I did say, I, I did say before we, you know, I did say as, as I introduce you, I've just got back from Greece, you know, with my tan. So, you know, I'm still on holiday mode, but, but you, okay. You've sold, sold the business and, you know, we are now talking sort of six years or so ago. Let's go through the journey afterwards. Cause you obviously, your education has increased substantially after this um, to, to what you obviously do now. So take us through that. So when I, when I got done, Nick, it was like this, I love to figure out, I like to take the complex and make it simple. And I realized like, you know, what is the opportunity in this marketplace? Why was that so inefficient, the process of growing and selling the business? And like, so then I, I went in and I, like, I was in CEO peer groups like Vistage. And so like a lot of entrepreneurs are like, Hey, why don't you help me? And so I went in, I got some finance certification. So I went in to like truly understand money not just income, like, so there's distributions and payroll, but then there's, hey, compounding interest, the value of assets, what do you do with this money thing? And then also consulting with uh, other business owners that are just, that watched us go through this journey. And they're like, hey, can you just come on, you know, retainer and help us fix our business and grow? Like, so it was kind of like this intangible way, but then I, I couldn't eliminate, and you, Nick, you've probably gone through this, where once you've sold a business and you've seen what and understood value as it relates to the marketplace, you have to have that lens as all the other decisions. So all the owners and entrepreneurs I was working with didn't have that lens because it was their first time business. And I'm like, yeah, but what's it worth? What, are we going to get the value out of the investment, out of the strategies, out of these? So I kept asking that. And then it was this like, so... I then went and continued to learn more on different certifications that may, you know, may or may not even be completely worthless. Um, <laughs> started the podcast four and a half years ago of just truly to have my sandbox, to interview the smartest people in the advisor community, authors, entrepreneurs. And it came down to this realization, Nick, that the number one problem in the mergers and acquisition marketplace is educated entrepreneurs that are founders that didn't come from an Ivy League school and understand corporate finance like you brought up. They understand how to sell widgets. Freaking amazing. They might have a $100 million company, but they don't understand the financial aspect of this to the degree that they should. And so like I go back to if, if, I, if I would have gone and talked to myself eight years ago, it would have been truly to create more freedom for myself would have been education. 
And so if I would have been able to understand how this world works, and so I simplified it by creating these five principles just to say, hey, you know, ADHD entrepreneur or someone that was an engineer or someone that was in the trades, like this is how to digest this world. Just so you can understand the picture, doesn't mean you have to be a financial engineer or an expert in any of these things, but you have enough to when you're sitting across from someone in a suit from New York, you understand the difference between private equity and VC or investment banking. And you can ask the questions to judge the character sitting in front of you. So that way you can then build the team and build the plan according to what you have determined is important to you. What was the most impactful education that you had over that sort of three to four years post the sale? Um, I think it, it's maybe the one thing that I've learned that I've a theme, right? So because the, there's like the, it, the podcast by far has been the the best it's amazing, thing that isn't I've it? Done, you, but, you get these, you get this opportunity to sit, to sit in front of people you may not ever be able to speak to. Um, yeah, and and, and you everything they learn. <laughs> I had um, I had a guy on the podcast uh, actually recently, a guy called Brad Feld, who was one of the first investors in Fitbit and Guitar Hero. Um, both of those exits were a billion, uh, you know, plus billion exits. And, you know, to have an hour with a guy, you know, amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, like it's just, it, it, and to do it for free, like you don't have to pay them. <laughs> exactly right. So yeah, so obviously and that's, for- that's one of it, but I, you know, what else, what's the thing that kind of got you? Cause you've obviously now created a business off this, which I can, we want to get into and, and some of the stuff you do, some of the stuff I talk about. But what was it in that transition, in that journey that really got you thinking, this is it, these are the key things, the key themes? Um, well, I don't think it was one thing. I'll tell you the, the theme. So the, and, and, uh, the, the, the main theme and then the five principles, which is how to actually change that. But because, I mean, it wasn't one thing because I got years of notebooks of trying to simplify this, right? I mean, I've got a lot of respect for the Gina Wickmans of the world who took an operation model and made it simple for people like to make it actionable, right? We don't need more like hundred thousand dollars strategic plans that are useless for everybody. Like we need shit. That's like, you know, actionable. You can, I can learn and then I can implement. And so the, then that's what the five principles is to make this world that we're about to talk about simple to understand. But the theme was Nick that I understood, like if there's one takeaway is that 90 plus percent of entrepreneurs are solving for annual income, their salary and their distributions, their K1. And I don't know over in your side of the pond what, what they call it, but it's right. It's the, it's the what's coming home. They're solving for that. From, and that ripples into how you treat your customers, the business model, whether you choose to hire a president for 200 grand, whether you choose to put in a phantom stock plan, whether you're choosing to invest in ERP systems, you name all of these things. If you want the 150 grand salary plus the $900,000 distributions this year. And you're going to sacrifice other investments because of that. That's the big shift that has to happen in the mindset to say, okay, truly understanding the value of a business allows you to shift your mindset. Okay. What can I do with that invest with that cash flow to reinvest and to create a more valuable business that gives me more options, just like commercial real estate investors do or big real estate investment trusts. I mean, like it's that mindset that then says, okay, well, yes, I'm going to have to hire Nick. If you want to become my GM for 200 grand, that's going to come out of my annual pocket, but it's going to create a more valuable business. Mm -hmm. That theme right there, if you can, if you can shift that, I swear a lot of the other stuff falls into place. You're playing around there with, and we talked a little bit about mindset beforehand, but you're playing around with a couple of things. You're playing around with scarcity and certainty, right? So, you know, the fact that I can take money off the table at an annual basis to, you know, buy my villa in Tuscany and my chalet in France or whatever else, you know, that's a, that's a kind of an immediate um, uh, satisfying your kind of need for stuff or need for whatever, right? Um, versus long-term value creation. Yeah. And like, and then it's so funny because like, and by the way, and even to set some more context behind this, there's not a bad route, right? So like if you want, if you're a consulting company or you're a smaller business and you just want that, it's fine, but don't like, I think purgatory is the worst where like you're doing that, but you think it's going to be worth 20 million versus saying, okay, you know, cause if you're going to, if you're going to make, I've talked to like recruiting companies, right? Where they're doing two or $3 million. And like, it's really hard to sell a recruiting company because it's your relationships, even more so than even like a law firm or a CPA firm. But like, 
if that's fine, that's all you're going to be, but then make sure you're saving 500 grand a year for savings right? and then reinvesting in a different way, but don't solve and buy random stuff and then think this is going to be worth 10 million bucks. You want to make a decision one way or the other. So I think it's like just saying, okay, I just need to then say, okay, what am I going to do with this cash flow to reinvest in what strategies that are growing the multiple and growing the EBITDA? It's just making the decision because you can have both. You just have to make the choice. Do you have a principle in terms of percentages and things like that? Or do you think it's different for different businesses and different um, stages of growth? About how, how much to reinvest in the I mean, cash what, we, what I do with, I mean, I've got seven separate businesses and we have a principle, which is any profit that comes out of the businesses, 50% of that profit goes back into investment and 50% can be used for dispersions or dividend. Now, we don't necessarily have to do that across all seven businesses, but as a principle, mm -hmm. we, we work to that philosophy because it serves us. Um, you're solving for value creation. Not you, I mean, the fact that you said portfolio businesses, the fact that you're talking like this already puts you in the camp of like, what am I, you're a capital allocator, right? Like you're, you know, you're creating a family office, you're, you're creating, you're an investor, right? Versus the people that are doing it for ego or affirmation or, you know, different reasons that people start businesses tend to then solve for annual income or the perks or whatever it is, instead of saying, hey, this company like I'm the CEO of this company, so I get paid 200 grand to be the CEO and there's a lot of things that come with that. I'm also the owner of this company. It might be worth 20 million bucks, but is that the truly the best where, the best place to have all my wealth? Should I take some of that money off the table by six other companies? You start to think differently when you're thinking about value, value creation and I mean, just your company like an asset. Yeah, cool. All right, well, let's let's get into kind of the principles because we've talked about this this intentional growth um, methodology or philosophy of yours. So, so what are the principles and what are the framework? So there's five intentional growth principles and I'll just do a super quick overview of them. And the reason they came to be, Nick, is that like after all, like, so I had John Worrell on my podcast a couple of times, Bo Burlingham and Jack Stack, and you name the, you and I, Mike, Mike McCallowitz yeah, yeah. and like, so we've had all these same people, but there was never a how to understand this. So that's really where it came, it came to be. And it's not us teaching owners what to do. It's teaching them how the game works so they can make their own choices of how to use the knowledge. So in the first one is your drivers. So what's important to you? Sounds fluffy, but I'll tell you what, there's too many people that have been on my show. They don't know what they want. That's why the deal fell, fell apart. That's why they regretted, even though they got $100 million. So when I say, what do you want? Is it a family legacy? Is it like we've had, you know, in Minnesota here, manufacturers that are in rural, rural counties, like if you sold, 200 people are going to lose their jobs. Like, are you going to be able to go in and have breakfast and have everybody stare at you because you fired the town? Like, what's important to you? Then you say, okay, the second principle is, what are your financial targets? And there's three of them. What's your target income? So your annual income personally, what is your out? The second one is your outside net worth and just understanding it because that is going to impact the third, uh, the third uh, financial target, which is your value of your company net. So you have enterprise value, equity value. And then after you pay down taxes, you can measure, monitor the net value of that business for you right now and then what it needs to be to be financially free. And the reason that makes a big difference is because your choice is later. And an example of that would be we got families that are wealthy, independent of the business, real estate, you name it. They literally don't need the business. They're going to gift it to their kids. They don't need liquidation versus someone that needs all of it. They need to do certain things with that. So the, the third principle is you start to see these stack in order, Nick, where the third one is your exit options. There's five of them that we bucketed, bucketed them to. There's the internal transfers. So that could be management, family, partners. The second one is search funds, acquisition entrepreneur, which they're getting backed by big money and they want to go in and buy a job. Third one is ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans. And uh, the, the fourth one is private equity, and, and which could be family office. Could, there's a lot of subcategories in these. And then the, the fifth one is strategic buyers. Mm -hmm buyers being up and down the supply chain geographically. There's a combination of all these, but the reality is each one of these are going to impact the value of the business, your role pre and post closing, and essentially your first and second principles. What do you want? And then your in and the financial targets. So now that we can kind of take a deep breath because we've kind of gotten to this point in the five, in the five principles where we've got this mindset shift and then everybody goes, Nick, okay, I got it. Now what do I do? 
Now we want to do the fourth principle, which is grow value by creating a sustainable, predictable cash flow machine that creates as many options to hit the first three principles as possible. And then the fifth principle is hire the right team of advisors, investment banker, CPA, attorney, wealth manager, people that get this, that aren't just your brother-in-law's cousin who does estates or your CPA who files personal tax returns from H&R Block, right? So these five principles, if you understand them, I watch people that walk out of this mindset shift, Nick, and they say, so my favorite example of, to, to, to put this home is this uh, client of ours, 11 million in revenue, 1.2 in EBITDA, 80 employees, been in the business forever. If they sold it right now, it's probably worth five and a half million, paid on the taxes, they'd walk away with two and a half. Not enough, they'd have to gut the company, sell it to a strategic buyer to walk away financially free. Totally not in line with their, what they built, right? Their culture, et cetera. So they came out and said, you know what? If I go from 1.2 in EBITDA to two, I'll go from a five and a half million dollar valuation to 12, and then I can do an ESOP and net $8 million in 36 months. Got so it. it's like this super intentional statement. And that's where I going back. I couldn't articulate that eight years ago. And most entrepreneurs can't. So the people that, but what we're talking about here are the people who are building businesses to exit. Yep. Predominantly as, as, as a, as a focus area, as opposed to the ones who are thinking lifestyle business, performance businesses, whatever else. So, so there's a stage where they are looking at the business as something that I'm going to exit in some way, shape or form. Okay. Got it. Yep. Well, in, and or have as many options as you possibly want. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of times acquisitions become one of the mechanisms of growth to be able to get what you want out of this too. Yeah, I was so going to ask on that. You, in, within your principles, it's probably under principle four, um, acquisitions to, to scale, you know, in terms of the growth strategy. So if you want to get to a really good thing, you, you might need to buy two or three of your competitors or up the supply chain or whatever else. That would come under principle four. Yep. And, and under principle four, there's eight functional areas and one of them is strategic planning. And then you've got your operations. And so if there's, if there's faster ways or more economical ways to accomplish the strategic plan of the business, which by the way, is just like an investment thesis of a private equity firm, right? We're going to do X, Y, and Z, have these choices with these customers in these areas. Do we organically grow it or do we buy a company to accelerate it to, to get to where we want to go? Yeah, got it. Okay. Wow. So this is, so let's go back a step. So if you had known this stuff <laughs> back in, you know, 2013, 2012, before you sold um, your company, what would, what would you have done differently? Um, it's, I think the choices we would have had would have been different. Right. <clears throat> so for example, like, and again, I, I don't regret anything about where I am right now. I absolutely love it. And, that, and that's just kind of the journey of life, but like the, the choices would have been different. So like, we could have been, we would have been a, like ripe private or private equity material. You got a young guy running the business, parent wants out, like let's buy out the majority of the business and then back this guy that's growing a company. <laughs> like that's, that would have been an option that we were not very familiar with. You know, if we would have, if we knew that we were like, let's say like the outcome was the same of, of selling to a strategic buyer. If I would have known principles one and two, and then even having the layer of the fourth principle of our strategic value growth plan, we wouldn't have built out the managed IT services and rebranded everything, Nick, because we didn't get the ROI, the long-term value of that, because it was a total customer acquisition play for the company that bought us. We got no value out of the millions of dollars that we spent building, building out that infrastructure. However, if we would have wanted to do an ESOP with that needed long-term value and a long-term cash flow machine, we should have done that. So you, that's, that's why the lens of the exit is is important to say, okay, what strategies are we going to put into place? Because we want to have a, a, you know, the value lens on this, but based on when and how we could actually uh, get out of the business. Yeah. Okay. Wow. No, that's good. I, I, I think it's an interesting, everything you spoke about there, I, I touch on and I have worked in with the private equity world. I mean, everything's changing considerably now. Um, and the, the kind of lines, if you like, the blur between the exit options, so private equity and, and VC, there's a, there's a massive overlap now between the, as you call it, the investment thesis and how they look at how they invest, whereas beforehand it was more delineated. What's your view? I mean, obviously with the people you work with now, your clients, et cetera, what's, what's your view on the market as it currently is? Obviously we've got pandemic, that's one area, but that's, you know, there's, there's some structural changes around that. But what sort of, what are you seeing and what are you advising? Um, 
before and this is I you gotta guide me because this could be a rabbit hole, but you know, go back when you said the lines are blurring, Nick, between private equity, VC, all this. Well, if you think about the different layers of the financial buyers, VC, they they invest in one to ten or one they want one out of ten or one out of twenty to you know accomplish the returns for the entire fund. Private equity is a little bit different. They want a little bit different rate of return because they raise the money from the investors as a leverage buyout. All of the world that we live in is based on providing a rate of return, right? The entire economic engine of our world economy in the, each country is based on a risk adjusted rate of return based on your activities. <laughs> it's just that simple. So the fact that the Fed is pumping trillions of free money into the economy, the junk bonds in the US right now are getting 2% yield. Do you want to give someone $100 million for 2% rate of return, knowing that they might never pay you? pay you back. That level of risk just doesn't work with this. So what's going on in the marketplace is you have huge pools of capital chasing ridiculously low rates of return because they're over their liabilities are huge. And what I mean by that, the pension funds in America are like, no one's got a fully funded pension fund. So you have all these people that are going to be retiring. So therefore the pension fund managers need and insurance companies need to get a rate of return that they probably can't get anywhere else, especially in U.S. treasuries. So they're going to say, Nick, you're a private equity firm. I need 21% internal rate of return. Go get it. You can go roll up XYZ industry. And you said you've done it a bunch of times. So when you start to watch the flow of capital and where it goes, you have strategic private equity firms now going on and doing strategic roll-ups like that to get, you know, to accomplish that internal rate of return. So I think you're going to continue to see high valuations in certain sectors and certain industries because of that, just push from the dry powder in the cat in the private equity market. But then, you know, from the valuations that we've seen from COVID, I did a podcast. It was episode 201, I think on the new state of business valuations with one of the top investment bankers in the country. And, the, the multiples have maybe gone down a little bit and adjusted industries are obviously important. You're not going to be investing in the invent business right now. Right. Well, events and, events and travel. I mean, you know. <laughs> in the, uh, but what has happened is like, so like you might say, Hey, you know what, Nick, your business is great. It's still great. However, risk in like the banks willing to finance the debts for private equity firms and all these different factors that are playing into it. You're the value of your company still might be worth 20 million bucks. However, deal structure terms are going to be way different, right? And we're not giving you as much down. We can't get as much debt. So you're seeing a whole lot of, you know, accommodation on the deal structure and the, and the combination to achieve that, even though your business might be healthy enough to yield a certain enterprise value. There's a couple of, I mean, just to build on what you said, there's a couple of interesting things I'm seeing. So the point I was making before about the blurring lines between VC and PE is I'm seeing private equity firms going out there and investing in what would typically be a higher risk business. I mean, basically, you know, tech businesses with no profit, you know, looking at ARR multiples and, and effectively doing that for a couple of reasons. And I'll probably get kicked by some of the firms I work with by saying this. But if you look at kind of how the remuneration structure works for the, for the partners of those firms, they can't be sitting on the capital. Now I've worked with, oh, I advise, I advise a couple of firms currently and you know, they are backed by big pension funds, big endowments, right? And they're under huge amounts of pressure to deploy that investment. So it's kind of funny, like this whole thing. You can, I, I mean, I've seen multiples in businesses and I will never name them on the podcast, but crazy stuff. And then all of a sudden, absolutely makes no sense. Here's the funny bit, right? So, so they make the investment and then the business goes underwater pretty damn quick for lots of, lots of reasons, because there was no real DD done, not the stuff that you and I mm. would think was acceptable. And then you've got the private equity guy, you know, literally throwing chairs against walls because his status has been, <laughs> has been compromised. Oh, but it's a great it's, time. You know, this is, this is the thing. And I'll say this, it's, if you have got a valuable business of a certain scale, you know, we mentioned some EBITDA, yeah, EBITDA numbers beforehand. It's a great time to play that market. Oh my gosh. You know, it, like in, in, in let's, let's, let's peel back. Why Nick? And here's the interesting thing for the people that are probably listening into your show and the, and the people that you and I talk to on a regular basis is there's this Venn diagram and I don't know if this is video or, or just audio, but you know, you have finance, corporate finance, which is what a lot you and I have been talking about. And then you have operating a business, mm -hmm. which is 
firing your VP of sales because they have a drug problem and you need to replace them because <laughs> of all these reasons. Like that's hard stuff. Have we worked in the, and like, we worked in the same business. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you what, uh, there was, uh, trust me, man, like no, no, <laughs> for no. this show, we'll, we'll stay out of it. But it's like, that's real business. And like, when you send them to treatment, your business is going to go down a certain amount of money. Like, I mean, those are real decisions that doesn't show up in a spreadsheet, right? So like, you have to blend. So the, the Venn diagram is this world where you have operations and finance that come together that is in this marketplace that you're talking about, which is, by the way, where human beings live and the general economy lives. And the reason that, and I'm curious on the funds that you've been working with and the partnerships is that the reason that the 2 million in EBITDA and above has been kind of like the bottom is because on 2 million in EBITDA, you can afford to pay your taxes. You can afford to hire Accenture to go in there and replace the VP. So you can just show up on your plane and just manage from a spreadsheet, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, but you go down further and like, shit gets ugly pretty fast. There's not a lot of wiggle room to burn the EBITDA and invest in all these consultants to make the general partner's life easier. So there's this weird spot between like a half a million and a few million in EBITDA where you need to be able to do both sides of that Venn diagram to, to true in the, 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 the numbers are the opportunity is huge. I think there's, 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 <clears throat> there's too much instability when you get below 2 million. So, and therefore, as you said before about, you know, return versus risk. So the businesses that we acquire, as in, in one of my businesses, we do acquisitions which sit below that level. So I'll go into businesses under 2 million EBITDA, buy them and, and basically change the operational structure, change the gearing. Mm -hmm. But to your question before about the private equity side, what normally happens is, you know, you'll get, and this is changing, and this is kind of um, something else that, that I, I do a lot of, is I go in there and, and provide the operational capability to a private equity firm. Now, a lot of the, the more progressive ones are building that into their model now. They, they, they either partner with people like us or they hire people mm -hmm. in, but they realize that sitting there looking at the spreadsheets and looking at it from a financial perspective is not going to get to the, you know, is this person the right leader? Does this person have the right set of values? Do they have the mindset that's going to get this thing, you know, a 10x totally. on their investment or more, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, a couple of the, the firms I advise, they're still playing around a minimum 3x return on their capital and their investment, but they, they want more. They want more. And again, back to your kind of your delta between that and the investor, the people putting the cash in, you know, they're, they're looking to try and get up to those double digit, double digit returns. Right. Well, in what I find interesting and also super encouraging, Nick, for this space is like, the people that are listening and you have doers, right? Like the, the, it's fun because like now there's this opportunity where the people that do good work, that understand this stuff and are willing to do the hard work, you're going to get the, you're going to get rewarded for it. Right. I mean, like this is not any, like there's a great book called the King of Capital from Blackstone. I mean, and they, they, they Steve Schwartzman and Pete Peterson, I think is his name, but like they, they talk about, you know, creating Blackstone from the eighties. I'm like, Oh my God, they taught like, no internet, how easy it would have been because the deals are out there. And like, just by doing the numbers, they became the world's largest private equity firm. But now people like you and I, you have to do the hard work, but the, the reward's still there yeah. because the returns should be there to going in there and saying new operational model, new systems. Are these the right people? I mean, you, there's some serious upside and a serious reward. I think, you know, and, and particularly where we are now in terms of the economy, pandemic, all that sort of stuff, this space is a really exciting space. The, the question I get asked a lot, and I don't have a good answer, so I'd be interested in your view on this, is I get asked, how long are these, these really excessive multiples how long is that going to last? Right. And it's funny, some of the private equity guys say, you know, they're saying, I'm not going to go much longer. You know, this, this business that's selling for 12 times, which really should be selling for six to eight. What's your view on that? What's your view in terms of if you were had to be held to a time frame, how much longer can the excessive multiples last? Okay. There's a couple of different questions there and I'll see if I'll, I'll answer them, but I'll, I'll give just you just your my opinion because it's a hard one. I yeah, yeah, no, no. And then like, and I think you and I interview similar people that lend advice on this. So, I think I have to quickly a question of like, what do you mean by excessive multiples? Like by excessive, like above and beyond the normal. Yes. Like those multiples right now are happening where, I mean, I, you know, like I'm seeing the same thing 15, 20 times even I'm like just purely math. Like you, it's going to take you 20 years to well, get we your sold, money back. We sold um, a business I was involved in. I think I mentioned to you this um, off, off air, so to speak, it was a 14 X, right? 14 <laughs> X on a 280 million EBITDA. And guess who purchased it? I don't even, I don't, I, I should know this. Well, we've been talking about them. Blackstone? Yeah. 
Or Black Rack, I mean, Black, or the yeah. Blackstone, Blackstone. Blackstone, Black, so Blackstone PE yeah. um, bought, bought that You know company. what, I did read that, I, yes. Which is just, which by the way, Massive. it's because that machine can make that money back, right? So like some, as long as like, like if I'm, if I'm listening in and I'm saying, okay, like if I get offered that somehow someone's got to make money. So as long as they can like articulate how they're going to get that return, like I have no issue with it. I just think that, so a couple of factors is, and then I'll explain to you my, my, how I, how I believe I'm going to navigate the landscape for the next 10 years. The, like the multiples that you're seeing right now of that 14, 15 X from just, so take the black zones out of the, the picture who are just have enough momentum to be able to make, make that actually work. When you have a lot of these mid-market private equity firms where they've raised money and they're just being forced to spend the money because they're getting so much pressure for charging the 2% on the you know billion dollars that they raised, they're going to overpay. And and I there's a guy I interviewed, uh, Elon Jacobson. I'll have to, he's a, uh, from Canada. Do you know him? No, I haven't. I haven't heard of him. Uh, yet, no. Super, super colorful, super funny oh, guy. Yeah, make an intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So he said yeah, he had more F-bombs in one episode than my, probably the hundred prior. That's all right. We're good. <laughs> and, but when he talks about, he talks about like in him and, and I would validate what he's seen is that you're getting to this point where the first funds that raise the money on those investment theses and those internal rates of return back in 2012-ish are now having to give their money back and they're not hitting their targets. So I think that's what's going to start to send it in the opposite direction where, okay, the, the PE marketplace is not giving us what we need. And like that, there, that takes time for that to happen. So you're going to maybe have the, you know, 10 to 15 times uh, multiples down. But like what I, you know, the way that I've been able to uh, consult our clients or the people that I talk to is like, you know, there's two different types to make business valuation simple. Intrinsic value, which is based on the risk of your cash flow, And then there's transaction value, which is when you actually sell or trade that business transaction has a buyer and a seller in the purpose of the deal, which is emotions, which is strategy, what's going on behind the scenes of the buyer that might tend to lean it towards a higher premium or a lower premium. You know, so lower would be the family that gifted it. You know, premium would be Blackstone, Synergies, et cetera. But the intrinsic value is always going to be there. It's based on the risk of the business model and the cash flow. That is what every single entrepreneur can control so if you can say, okay, based on the risk, so in ESOP or a, you know, any kind of financial discounted cash flow, you say, I can control this. So if I can get to this EBITDA with this amount of risk, it's always going to be worth a seven or eight times. Then everything else about, about, above and beyond that are choices of when and how you want to do it. Is it worth the money? Is it worth the risk? But if you're solving for the intrinsic value, it doesn't matter if there's a global uh, global pandemic or not, as long as your cash flow continues to maintain and sustainable in the future. Yeah, I like that. I like that definition. I haven't heard it explained like that before, but the idea that actually, because I've seen the emotional side, you always see the the value that a deal goes for is nothing to do with necessarily what the business is worth. I had a guy called Tim Worth in terms of the way you would do it from a from a kind of metrics perspective. I had a guy called Tim Collar from McKinsey um, on my podcast. He's um, global head, global head of value, um, valuations. And he said to me, he said, listen, the way you value a business from the intrinsic point that you're saying, he hasn't changed. You know, the book that he's written, which is now in 17 editions or something ridiculous is the same book he yep. wrote 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. everything else that comes around that, the color of the markets, the synergies, all the other bits, the emotions, the brands, all the stuff that you just don't know where that's going to land. But I like what you're doing because if you can start to put some predictability around those things by saying, here are the options, this is what it could look like. That definitely starts to get the entrepreneur more empowered, let's say, to be, and more control. informed to be able to control that process to make, make a better decision. Right. I mean, like in, cause the fundamentals of business is like, you have to like, something has to kick out cash flow every year. Right. And what's the sustainability of that cash flow? There's a risk premium tied to that. Like, somewhere, some way in the supply chain of buying and selling companies, someone's got to make a, make money. And our economy is proving the fact that that may or may not be true because we're giving money to people that are bankrupt, the zombie companies. So <laughs> this may not that's be a different, that's a different podcast. That's <laughs> right. I know. But like, like if, if you, and I think that we, our whole world will recalibrate to the fundamental belief and the, the fact that someone 
somewhere has to make a profit based on the investment. That's a, that's a true fact, right? So we have to, the intrinsic value is there. And then if someone's going to pay 14 X, it's because somehow they're able to take that investment and get the rate of return in a reasonable timeline. So even though you're paying 14 X on that EBITDA for them, it might only be a two to five X because of how fast they can monetize that investment. That's just purely like the thought process. And when, even though that stuff might be out of your control, you can always go back and say this asset as an individual, you have seven assets, right? They all have a certain amount of cash flow and they have a certain amount of risk tied to it. How can we make sure that that's de-risked as much as possible and we can sustain that cash flow into the future until somehow it might trade hands, which would be then the, the transaction value. Yeah, and, and the other thing behind that is, is also about being present. Do you know what I mean? Being focused on the here and now, the stuff that you can control, not getting too far ahead of yourself or getting too emotional with what has happened in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, because because again, yeah, that starts to happen. I've seen people who are about to sell their business. They go down to the Aston Martin garage, they pick out the car. This is a true story. This is, this happened. Not me. <laughs> not me. Can promise you. Yeah, uh, not me. Not me. I, but a friend. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. no. It's, it's, it's someone I work with. I've, I've worked with actually, and they were literally going to go and sign the deal on the Monday. They went to the Aston Martin garage on the Saturday. Right. Some dude came in with some spreadsheets, literally in the signing process and said, we're not happy with this, delayed it for three days. And then the deal fell through. Yeah. I've heard it too many times. I mean, and, and the, the, the thing is, is if you, so what happened, what's the risk of that happening? So the risk is that you did not build a valuable business that's sustainable and predictable, transferable cash flow. And you have to sell because of cash flow issues, because of market issues. So too many times entrepreneurs, they're going to run hoping that, that, that it's like almost as relay race and the, like no one, it's like we forgot that we needed to make money in the middle of this relay race. So at some point the music's going to stop. And if you're the one holding the bag or the, or the baton and then the market says, Hey, by the way, I guess we should probably figure out how to make money again. Like, then that's going to be a bummer. But the people that I've watched, Nick, who like build insanely valuable businesses, like, I mean, Norm Brodsky was on the cover of Inc. Magazine. He was on my podcast, two different exits that he had. One is he grew, he wanted to hit a hundred million so bad. He went bankrupt, had to lay off like 2000 employees. Second company grew to 25 million in revenue and 10 million in EBITDA. He sold the son of a gun for like $115 million. He goes, I decided that EBITDA was more important than revenue. And like, but that's choices. He could have done an ESOP for 80 million, but he just, you know what I mean? Like you have choices if you build a valuable business that then someone might want to buy at some point, but only under your terms, your conditions, everything that you want is people forget that they have to do that because they assume that the next person with the baton is going to be there. Yeah. Wow. It's very cool. Very cool. I love, I love your journey as well, Ryan, in terms of what you've, what you've learned and then what you've built. I suppose from a knowledge perspective and how you're helping people since, since your exit. So as we, as we finish up a couple of different things, if, if you were in as an investor, if you put your investor hat on, if you, if you were going like to look at the market now and where you see opportunities, where would you be looking to invest your money for value creation for growth? Uh, conscious capitalist businesses. Yeah. Honestly. Okay. I was going to, um, I'm glad you brought that I, up. I'm, yep. I am a big proponent of it. Um, I've had the CEO of my podcast and like, I just truly believe like there's the, the, the general consumer and the general world has become awakened to like, Hey, by the way, there's certain things that are good and bad business can be both be good and, and, and help others and make money. And I just think that like the numbers now from a, just a, if you're a greedy capitalist at the, at the bare bone and that's it, you're still going to go towards this because treating everybody well in the long run is better for business. And so I think that those businesses typically treat everybody well, they have better profit margins, they have more sustainable businesses, and they can weather things like right now with the pandemic, because they built good companies. Yeah, see that that piece, I mean, we're seeing that a lot as well. So if I go out to the VC world, I sit on a couple of um, growth accelerators, incubators or whatever else, and, and the VCs are now starting to say that, that you know we need to look a little bit deeper when we're investing in these businesses. It's not just about the, the return because, if you look again at the, the people who are putting the cash into these, these um, funds, you know, they're starting to ask that question as well. And then you've got the piece where actually, if you think about the workforce, the labor force and how that's transitioning as well, the values of the people coming in 
you know, be them employees or fractional support or whatever else, they also are aligned to this idea of conscious capitalism. Are there any businesses that stand out for you right now in the world that you think are really the hallmarks of, of I'm going to call it a movement because it's a transition, but obviously it's going to become the norm at some point. Uh, Jack Stack, who is the founder of the great game of business. Um, he's been on my show twice. He's the f- grandfather of open book management. He started doing ESOPs back in the eighties before they were really a thing. And that dude has crushed it, Nick. I mean, he's got now 1600 employees. They saved a hundred million dollars in cash over the last decade, preparing for the next downturn and their employee owned. He has people that are on the shop floor. We're making 16 bucks an hour that are worth millions of dollars. And they've just, he's just proven that like everything works when everybody is making money and tra- I mean, they, they remanufacture engines, like not that sexy, but he's had people that have spun off and created businesses. I mean, just what he's done is like literally the poster child of what I think business can be all around. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. Well, listen, um, you've mentioned a lot of different things that people are going to be, you know, their brains are going to be blown tonight, right? <laughs> um, where can people, well, first and foremost, if people want to kind of learn a little bit more about your intentional growth, and the principles and things like that. Where can people go to find out more about that? Our website's pretty much got everything on it. It's arcona.io. So it's A-R-K-O-N-A.io. The podcast is on there, the Intentional Growth Digital Course. So it's not, you can either do it live or in a digital format, live to be determined when, again. Um, and then we've got a bunch of material on there. The podcast is on there. The course is on there, everything. Otherwise, me on LinkedIn is super easy to, to access. Yeah, awesome. Well, listen, as I said, we'll put all of that stuff into the show notes and I'm sure there'll be people reaching out and asking you some questions around some of that stuff. So listen, thanks. Thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on Scale Up Your Business. I enjoyed that conversation immensely. And you know what? We had a, a call, was it about two, three weeks ago where we were talking mm-hmm. about this? And I knew from that call, we could have recorded some of that, right? I knew it was going to That would have been fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a couple edited words here and there, but it was-, well, it was- um, a, a few sharing of battle stories and war stories or whatever. But <laughs> listen, um, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on Scale Up Your Business. As I said, you've offered a heap of value here this evening. I'm very grateful for you coming on the show. Appreciate it, Nick.